Welcome to the Long-Term Care Chronicles podcast. So in this episode, this is the second part of the Restoring Trust, COVID-19 and the Future of Long-Term Care with Dr. Sharon Strauss from the University of Toronto. So let's have a listen. You talked about in terms of dementia as one of the populations as well as You know, women over a certain age are primarily in long-term care, and we have other segments within the population that aren't necessarily older than 65. We do have, as you mentioned, the other congregate settings. We do have people that are special needs, developmentally delayed, that are living in long-term care, as well as individuals that, as I said, they're younger folks but have medically... um, challenging needs. So I know the report talked primarily in terms of with dementia, but I guess how can that as well be seen, I guess, for, you know, those types of other populations as well in there? Absolutely. So it's a, it's a great point. And you're right, like in our document, we really focused on um, on the older adults, but you're absolutely right. What we talked about here can apply to, to other congregate living settings, like, um, you know, whether they're group homes or um, um, or other types of, of settings, you know, it's the same, it's the same factors that, um, that we have to think about. And you're, you're right. Um, certainly when you think about the, um, you know, the long-term care setting, the, the, the residents, they, you know, they are, they do tend to be women. They do tend to be women who, um, uh, are, at an economic disadvantage compared to um, you know, compared, compared to counterparts, um, and um, and again, I think it, it highlights you know we we talked at the beginning about the workforce about, about it being a you know a, having to use an intersectionality lens. I think we have to you know that this is again I think one of the challenges that that we have failed um, on is that we haven't taken that same lens when we've thought about the residents in long-term care and then also in the other congregate settings that we've talked about. Um, and so then our strategies to provide care that haven't necessarily been tailored to that. Um, you know, the, the, the staffing mix and model, the, um, the funding models haven't considered all those different factors. And so that that's, again, why I think um, you know, one of the one of the challenges has been our um, our failure to really have a thoughtful um, approach to making sure that we have a good understanding of the residents, their families, their families' needs, the residents' needs, our workforce needs, and who all these people are, and what are their characteristics, and how do we need to make sure that you know what we're what we're able to to deliver in terms of care is tailored to them and their needs. Um, and I think that's been one of the, one of the key things, because we don't, as you know, we can't, it's not a one size fits all strategy. Exactly. And then because you mentioned this varied population in long-term care, the training that needs to, to go in there, because we have, yes, we have nurse practitioners, registered nurses, registered practical nurses. We have PSWs or care aides, depending on where they're, what they're called across the country. And especially those PSWs and care aides, they don't have the training um, that can be able to really assist. It's all about task oriented, but that may not necessarily fit with the population. And I know the report did talk about in terms of making sure that that is uniform across the country in terms of those types of standards. And that's why federally wise, this needs to be under the Health Act. So 
how do can you just speak to that to, to some of those points yeah i think again you raise a really important point wendy that um you know part of the challenge is that you know for example you mentioned carries or psws like there there isn't any um you know regulation yeah. and so um, and so, you know, and, and so from province to province, kind of what, um, what happens in terms of education can, can vary from country to country, it yeah. varies. So, um, so it is, it, it is something that, um, again, we need to think about what's optimal in terms of, um, uh, what, it, how much education, but also kind of on, you know, is as a, as a clinician myself, you know, we always talk about continuing education, continuing professional development, you know, that that's part of our, um, uh, that's part of the expectation. But what support do we give to these individuals mm-hmm. to facilitate that, right? Yeah. Um, I don't think we've, we've developed a system to support their continued education and their continued, continued professional development because they don't have that same type of uh, an organization. Um, and so being able to, um, being able to support that so that there is kind of ongoing education. And so during the outbreak, it's a great example of, um, you know, the appropriate use of PPE, just taking that one piece, um, you know, it's, it's not easy as you're, you know, as you're starting to, to, to kind of um, use it. And, and, um, and over the course of the outbreak, the guidance changed over the way, you know, along the way as well. Yeah. And, and so we're just keeping abreast of all the changes in the guidance from, you know, wearing a mask, well, first of all, not wearing a mask and wearing a mask and, you know, mask and face shield, yeah. you, know, like, <laughs> yeah. you know, it changed, like it was, it was changing. And, uh, you know, I know how, how difficult it is to, to keep abreast yeah. of that. But then also when you're going into the rooms of people and you're, you know, and, and the, you know, the approach that you do, the donning and the doffing, um, you know, and getting the training in that um, and getting the reminders around that. Like one of the things in, um, uh, you know, that we found helpful on the acute care side of things was, you know, like with our residents, with our medical residents, we did like ongoing training with them. Like, you know, we had ongoing training and, and then we had, you um, uh, basically safety officers who would go around and would do audits and would check, or we would have buddies that we would pair up with. And so it was implementing that same kind of, kind of an approach then in the long-term care homes, um, which did not have the resources to do that, right? So how do we how do we do that? So how do we provide that, that ongoing education? And then the, having the ability to remind people as well, because as you know, um, as we've seen, as we're watching the news, people are getting pandemic fatigue, yeah. right? And they're getting, and we all we yeah. all get a little bit, um, you know, we get a little bit complacent, you know, and things. And um, and so it's that constant reminder, that constant vigilance of, of you know, what what the processes are. And and so you need to have that, that infrastructure and support, um, you know, within the organizations to be able to do that um, and to support the PSWs and being able to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And hopefully that can be, you know, the plan put out there to be able to have that facilitated. Because I know with some facilities, it all depends because some will support that in terms of that additional education and others will not. And it all is, I guess you can say, not so much that I want to say that it's um, a recommendation or if it's an organization specific, it's usually each facility specific if you know what I mean, like it's, let's say if it's company A uh, from company A, they have 12 facilities, 
maybe one or two are actually basic on their own initiative, what they feel is is appropriate for their particular facility, that they'll go ahead and do that stuff. Yeah. Well, I think that's an important, uh, absolutely important point because they're all managed by different people. So, um, so they're going to have different approaches and certainly, you know, I think that was very apparent during, you know, as we all watched kind of the outbreaks that were happening at different sites, like people have very different approaches, right? Yes. Um, so you, you could, you, you know, definitely, I think that's a critical thing that, you know, even, you know, across an entire network of, of homes, we may not have the same thing going on and may not have the same support across all the sites. Exactly. And then now currently with what is happening in, in terms of a lot of uh, long-term care homes currently that there is outbreaks um, and the recommendation did indicate that, you know, the need to act is immediate and we have not acted at this point in time. So, you know, what will that, you know, do to us and say to us about it as, as, as Canadians, as in our society, as to, to, that we were fit, that we did not act, we did not try or attempt to even try to rectify and to implement something because this pandemic will be with us for some time. It's at least they're saying, I guess, two years at least. So we need to have some sort of a plan, but there's no action, no motion towards that. And then how can others get involved to be able to move that forward? So... So absolutely, and I'm so glad that you asked that because um, if we if we don't do something now, like what is it going to take? Yeah. Like what is it really going to take to to affect change? And I think that's the thing that many of us find um, very very distressing yeah. because we all have seen this happening, and um, and to see this happen in Canada. Yeah, it's it's I think it's tough for all of us to see and to, to think that um, we haven't we I agree with you. I mm-hmm. don't think that um, we have uh, we have effectively met the challenge yet for the for the next wave. Everybody is working really hard to do, to do so. But, um, you know, ideally it would be it would be nice to see some of these recommendations that we've talked about, like continuing the pandemic pay, for example, yeah. um, you know, recruiting more um, into into the long term care sector, um, making sure that, um, you know, that we really do have adequate um, PPE supply chains within the long term care, adequate access to testing yeah. and um, and and with the results getting um, made available to the to the workers in a timely fashion. So there's all these different pieces that, you know, we're already seeing, um, you know, there's struggles with it. Everybody's everybody's seeing that. And so, so I think that it has highlighted that, you know, now is the time we have to act on this um, and we have to, you know, we have to move this, move this forward. And, you know, I think it's a, I think it's a great time for, um, for advocacy. And I hope that, you know, the people who are listening to this, the, you know, the, the family members, the, you know, the other caregivers, um, you know, really are vocal about the advocacy and engage on, you know, the, the messages on, um, we, we want to provide the best possible environment for residents in long-term care homes. This is their home. They deserve a fantastic quality of life, a good end of life for those at that stage. 
they deserve that. And, and we should be, we should be valuing that and we should be providing that for them. And we should be valuing the work that the frontline workers in the long-term care homes are delivering. That this is the other you know piece that I, I really worry about that you know these individuals have gone through a tremendous amount a tremendous amount of stress and moral distress over this time period and now as we're heading into this next wave you know are they getting the appropriate support um, you know to, to 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 go through this this next period and how best can we support them going through this next period. So, so absolutely, I agree with you that um, now is the time for for people to be to be vocal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, ask about these these recommendations. Ask about you know why pandemic pay you know can't be continued. It's again, it's variable across the provinces, yeah. um, and um, and so thinking about um, how can we how can we ensure that those messages are heard. Um, and that, you know, again, we're not, we're not asking for, um, you know, lots of, lots and lots of new money with no accountability. We want to make sure that any funding that goes from the federal government to the provinces and territories is attached to high quality care, um, that, and by high quality care, it's what the residents and their families and the staff want to be achieved. Exactly. Because that's what's really needed to be able to ensure that, you know, whether currently and in the future, that that quality of care and quality of death does happen within that segment. And then because I know that the report as well mentioned in terms of the recommendations as to how to kind of correct correct or resolve the workforce issue and how the provinces and the federal government should really be working collaboratively together to be able to do this. And can you just talk to us to some of the points that you mentioned in the, in the report? Yeah, so for sure. So part of this is around, you know, we've talked about, um, uh, we've talked about the funding, but also thinking about, um, you know, setting up a, um, a national uh, working group that would actually look at the appropriate staffing model and mix and, um, and setting the standards. So what are the standards in terms of the amount of direct care versus indirect care mm-hmm. per, per resident within the long-term care setting? And then similarly around, um, you know, the access to the multidisciplinary team that, you know, it shouldn't be up to like, you know, each province and territory to think about all these different things. Um, and that really we could achieve so much more if we, if we do it at a, a, do it at a national level and then, um, be transparent about it. So I think that that should get publicly reported so that, you know, for each of these, um, for each of these indicators that should actually be reported as well as how much money, you know, how much money goes from the federal government to the provinces and territories for this? Um, you know, and, 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 and what's the return on the investment? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, is it, is it, is it met? And if not, why not? Um, so, so I think those are, are, um, are really, really important things. The other thing that, um, you know, in terms of kind of the integration that, that, that needs to happen is, um, Again, one of the things that that was seen in the first wave of, of COVID was that in countries where there was a very close integration of their public health and of the different healthcare sectors, mm-hmm. they tended to perform better. Okay. 
Um, and so if you looked at, at countries like, um, you know, Australia's not doing so well now, but they were doing well then, mm-hmm. Slovenia and Austria, they all, at the very beginning of the outbreaks, they um, their policies that they implemented um, were across the sector. So they didn't just focus on acute care, they focused on acute care, long-term care, the community and the economic piece. So they did it all at once. And so it was a very much uh, holistic approach to the policy side of things, as opposed to in Canada where it was more, um, more fragmented. And so I think, again, it highlighted that we need to be thinking about these things from, you know, um, from across the, the different sectors and, you know, again, now with what's going on in the education side of things, yeah. it highlights again that, you know, how interconnected we are, yes. so that, you know, what happens in one sphere has a ripple effect in, in the other sphere. So, kind of, um, so the fact that, um, you know, what's going on in the, you know, with, with back to school now um, should not be a surprise, right? Yeah, should not be a surprise. But I guess lastly, in terms of with the report and the recommendations, what else um, do you think that, you know, in that report that it indicates that we should be looking at and really should be a priority for us to really, you know, one of the main things that we should really be looking at? I think um, I think I think a few things. One is I think we want to make sure that um, certainly in Ontario that uh, you know that there is continued um, provincial support for the linkage of acute and long term care to 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 optimize the um, you know the, the the outbreak management and and control because I think that um, that's going to be key to, um, you know, to to getting through this next period. Um, equitable pay for for the long-term care staff um, that's aligned with their acute care counterparts. Um, Ongoing education for long-term care um, staff, but also mental health supports, as I mentioned. I think that's a a key thing. Um, The appropriate staffing models and mix for long-term care and really thinking about how it has to be tailored to the context. It's not going to be a one-size-fits-all, so it's understanding the residents and their needs and tailoring the, the mix and model to that. Thinking again about the, the multidisciplinary models of care and what and what works. Making sure that um, families are engaged and that they are active participants in, in all of these recommendations and coming up with the, with the quality indicators. And then finally, making sure that we do have the data to, to make sure that we're monitoring resident quality of life and the, the staff quality of work. We want to make sure that the staff are happy at work, that they're satisfied, that they're feeling supported, so that they have that they have a high quality work experience. And so it's being able to make sure that we have the data to, to understand that, because it's only when we have that that we can make any adjustments then. Thank you. I really appreciate your time, Dr. Strauss. Thank you so much. No, my pleasure. Thank you. You're welcome. 
Thank you for listening to today's show. And if you have any feedback or suggestions for this or any other episode, please contact us on our social media at Twitter at Family Councils and at Facebook, Family Councils Collaborative Alliance. Thank you so much and hope you enjoyed this episode.